Good morning. Thanks for, for being here today. I hope you're doing well. My name is Lance. If we haven't got a chance to, to meet alongside um, Brian and, and Zach, I get to serve as one of the pastors here, which is a, a gift. It's an honor. And I often get the opportunity to consider the Bible together with you. So if you have a Bible with you, you could snag that, pull it out, get it ready, turn it on, or whatever else uh, is applicable uh, for your situation. We're going to look at Scripture together in, in just a moment. Let me get you caught up if you haven't been here a little while, and I guess if I'm being honest, let me get myself caught up. I haven't taught for a couple of weeks. I'm really grateful for time, uh, time out of, uh, of teaching, and that was restful and rejuvenating. Also really grateful for Brian and for Brent and their faithfulness in stepping in. And so where we've been, as we've finished up the last couple of weeks, as we got right through the end of Romans chapter 10, we'd been studying through the book of Romans. It was a, a series we called Rags to Righteous. And what has been happening as we come to the end of Romans chapter 10 is there's a major question. A problem has been introduced. There is an issue in Paul's mind, one that he can't seem to shake, one that proves to be extremely difficult to answer, and that is essentially this question. Why have God's people, Israel, en masse, those who have carried along God's promises, they've been his crew, his team, why have they rejected Jesus? Does this invalidate the gospel? Does this mean that everything that we're saying about Jesus somehow needs to be a little bit, we should be suspicious of it, or as the kids say, is it sus? What do we think about Israel and their hardness of heart and why they have rejected Jesus? So to remind you, After Romans chapter 8, there's been eight chapters building up all the glories of the gospel. It ends at the point where Paul is so reveling in who God is at the end of Romans chapter 8 that he's like exploding out of himself. He says, I'll take all comers. Who could stand against us? If God is for us, who could be against us? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then immediately he turns, and this is the question. Romans 9 starts with, but what about God's people? He tries to retell some of the story of God's people in that ninth chapter. Beginning of chapter 10, he starts with, what about God's people? My heart is that they would be saved. End of Romans chapter 10 ends with the same concept. And so I want you to just look at the end of Romans chapter 10. It's not going to be on the screens because in some ways today's topic is about what's not there. I'm going to teach on or preach on or at least introduce that over the next 10 weeks, I want us to think about a pause, a blank in the text. I want us to consider that at the end of Romans chapter 10, it says, of Israel, he says, God says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He uses this word, his people. Who are these people? And I want you to imagine a pause. And when things pick back up again in Romans chapter 11, His first words are, I ask then, has God rejected his people? There it is again, his people. And what I want to do is think about the pause between those two verses, the end of 10 and the beginning of 11, and make sure that we are avoiding one of the great tragedies and temptations of life. If not, not, certainly not just spiritual life, but all of life, one of the great problems and tragedies is to assume too much. I heard someone, I don't know if they coined it or where they got it from, but the idea that many of us are in danger of a suicide. That we ignore and assume the things that are most vital. 
And so what I hope to do over the next 10 weeks, we're going to come back to Romans chapter 11 in the fall. And that 11th chapter is about the future. It's about how God is going to weave together this wonderful plan so that the people of God are one. And the answer of what is he doing with ethnic Israel will be answered in many ways throughout that 11th chapter. But before we get there, the question is, do we know the story of God's people? Do we know what it means when Paul mentions, why is it so important that Israel understand or receive Jesus? Here's my guess, because we are far enough removed and because we live in Leon County in 2022, that many of us don't understand the implications of a gospel that is being proclaimed to other people in other places, in other languages, and that the doors, or in the most literal case, the shroud over the temple, the veil over eyes, the binders and the blinders have been removed. We are, in many ways, no longer Gentile enough, if that makes sense. We don't feel that. It's potential that we could read Romans chapter 9, 10, get through to 11, and think, well, that's someone else's story and someone else's problem, and I think it's a nation maybe, and people argue all the time about the future of Israel, and I don't know. And what I want to consider with you over the next 10 weeks is to consider that it is not someone else's story, but it is our story. That God's message and his work down through the ages is his work for us, and that this should matter to us in the same way. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back, and we're going to hit a greatest hits album of sorts of the Old Testament. I don't know what your favorite greatest hits album are, uh, is, but there's plenty uh, to choose from. Pick some artists that you've loved for decades and decades. You get the greatest hits album, and it's just one hit after the next. We are going to go through and carefully walk and consider the story of God's people to make sure we know the urgency behind what Paul is saying here in the gospel going out to all the earth. We're going to, hopefully, let me tell you a couple of thoughts for the summer. My hope is that one thought for the summer over the next 10 weeks is that we, first and foremost, fall in love again or remember or discover for the first time the wonder of God's work in the Old Testament. And let me tell you why I think this is important. It's one thing that we can assume. For many of us, the Old Testament is a bog to get bogged down in. It is a fog to flail around in. And I want to remind you of a couple of things. One, the importance of understanding the Old Testament. Because the entirety of Romans, in fact, the whole message of the New Testament, is in black and white if you don't understand the places and the people that are being referred to. So one of the goals is that we fall in love with or discover the color of the Old Testament to bring into the New. I've often thought that the Old Testament could use a bit of a marketing campaign. Because after all, in our day and age, if you dis- describe something as or you invite someone to consider something old, that doesn't sound very appealing. Don't you want the new one? Hey, I got you a gift. It's a really old iPhone. You'd be like, what? It doesn't even have zoomy motion tracking night sensor 14 cameras. I want the new. And so I've often thought for you could think about it in a different way. Maybe you should think about the Old Testament not so much as old or new, but vintage and newer. Or perhaps you would think in a competitive day and age, we should think of the Old Testament as the first covenant. It's the first testament. 
So some people like to be hipsters. They wanted to know about things before it was cool. Well, the Old Testament is God's work before it was cool. It's the First Testament. Now, I understand the the idea of the language of the New Testament being new, because Jesus does say, this is the new covenant in my blood. But perhaps we could also think of the New Testament as the fulfilled testament. And the question then becomes, fulfilled what? Well, fulfilled what had come before in the first or the vintage testament. And so my hope is, is not only that we discover the color of the Old Testament in reading the New, but that we remember again that this is all one story. And that what God has been doing from the beginning, he's been doing for us. And that in his work on the cross, in Christ, that he was doing the same thing. He was loving us in the same way as he was when he was calling Abram as an obscure man from an obscure place. So we would fall in love again with the Old Testament. I hope that going through the story of the next 10 months gives us a greater appreciation for Romans. I hope that when we get to Romans chapter 11, you think to yourself, you know what, what is going to happen with Israel? And how does an ethnic people intertwine now with the spiritual people that are one in Christ? So I hope that it gives you a greater appreciation for what we're reading specifically in Romans when we come back. And then finally, I hope that over the next 10 weeks, that you begin to have a heartbeat that is much like God's heartbeat. And that is, is that you see his heart for the nations. You see that when God desires a people, that what he's been doing now for thousands of years is gathering a people, not in one tiny little place with only a few little people, but in as many places as possible, through as many languages as possible, for as far as the ages will last. That the idea of the people of God for you moves from the idea of a couple people gathered in a small little place with a potluck, oh, those are great, you can have them, But you imagine that potluck and that small little place enveloping the entirety of humanity. And so that overall, what God has always been doing, what he's doing now and what he will do in the future is caring for and calling a people. The people of God and the story of the people of God is a massive, massive topic. And to understand it is to guard against a suicide. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce you this morning some of the main concepts, the greatest hits that we're going to go through to make sure that we understand the story of God's people, the story of Israel. Because up to this moment, that's what God's people would have been referring to, the story of Israel. Now you might say, well, how are we going to do that? Where are we going to go? Well, all we have to do is turn left, right? In your Bibles, we just turn left, we start paging. And we're not going to page as far this morning as you might imagine. We're going to flip a few, like this, but we're going to stop just one book over in the book of Acts. I want you to start turning left, going in Acts, and I want you to think about something as we turn. A little Bible trivia question for some of you who really killed it in the co-op at home or whatever it was. Let me ask you this Bible trivia question as you're turning there. What is perhaps one of the longest recorded sermons in all of the New Testament? Most famous preachers given the most ink in the New Testament as you're turning. Well, you say, well, whole New Testament, I'm going to Jesus juke this thing. Have you heard of the Sermon on the Mount? And that's a pretty lengthy one, and I'd say, yes, I'll give you that, you're right. Jesus has a lengthy sermon recorded. Then you'd say, well, and then it's maybe too obvious if it's Paul, because we just read Romans, that's kind of a whole sermon itself. He stands before councils. Maybe it's Paul. Then you keep turning, you think to yourself, I know where we're going here. Maybe he's talking about Peter. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. 
You may recall that Peter stood up and he was the first to preach concerning Jesus as far as we have a record of in the beginning of Acts. And if you mentioned or if you answered any of those, I would say, I am grateful for your knowledge of the Bible. But if you did not respond or answer with Stephen, I would understand. Because it turns out that one of the longest, most detailed and fully recorded sermons in all of the New Testament is delivered not by Paul or by Peter or by Jesus himself, but by the deacon, the sort of proto-deacon, Stephen. Acts chapter 7 is where we are going to look over the next number of moments. Acts chapter 7. As we're turning there, a few things to know about Stephen. Stephen was called into service as one who was identified as having great wisdom and the spirit of Jesus. He was called into service in Acts chapter 6 because there was a, a crisis. It was a crisis of needs in the church. People were being neglected, probably ethnically motivated neglect, prejudice involved. Hellenistic widows were being bypassed over for the resources of the church. And Stephen quickly becomes identified as someone who is not only capable, but spiritual and ethical and honest and worthy of being placed in leadership over this crisis. So I think about Stephen not as someone who's necessarily only behind the scenes, but imagine the kind of people you call when there's a crisis. Stephen gets called, and he's that kind of man. And so you may think to yourself, I remember that about Stephen. That's one thing. Secondarily, you may remember about Stephen that he was mercilessly and unjustly stoned to death, that he had the face of an angel upon facing his death, that God spoke and commended him in the face of his death. This idea of Stephen would be understandable, and you may have missed that the other great thing, maybe the only other thing really recorded concerning Stephen, is a wonderfully in-depth, long sermon. He gives a speech before the high priest in all of Acts chapter 7, and it is 53 verses long. 53 uninterrupted verses of explanation and teaching on the Bible given by Stephen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use Acts chapter 7 as an introduction. Acts chapter 7 is going to lead us to some of the greatest hits. It's going to be an intro for us to go back then to the beginning of Genesis and to make our way up through Jacob and his family and Joseph and Egypt and Exodus and stop off at the at Mount Sinai, and we're going to be looking at Joshua and Canaan and a new land and look at the kings and look at the prophets and the judges and go all the way through the history of God's people through the summer. And we're going to use as a launching point Stephen's speech. I want to do this for a couple of reasons. One, because apart from Psalm 104 and 105, this is one of the lengthiest and completest histories of Israel in the Bible. Secondarily, because Stephen uses an understanding of God's people as his defense for trusting Jesus. And I think that that's a wonderfully and exemplary example. It's a wonderful example of the kind of thing we're attempting to do in Romans. To understand why we would trust in Jesus, Stephen gives us his defense and understanding of God's work with his people. And then finally, we're going to give Stephen's speech a look and read through Romans chapter, or Acts chapter 7. Because I believe that he touches on 
but does not go deep on many of the places that we're going to want to go over the next 10 weeks. So I want to warn you, I'm going to read through different sections of Acts chapter 7, but we're not going to dive deep in nearly any of them. Maybe some of your favorite characters are going to come up. You're going to think to yourself, that's my guy. That's my Old Testament story, and you want to pause there. We're not going to be able to pause. I often tell a story when we're doing a sermon like this of 20 years ago, 20 years ago this week. Sarah and I are on our honeymoon. I decide that we want to go on an adventure. We're going to go snorkeling, right? And so we buy the couple-hour snorkel tour, and we're going to go out there. And uh, I still can't believe this is the way that it works. No one else is on the snorkel tour. So we're in the Bahamas, and a guy shows up with a boat, and he says, jump on my boat, and I'll take you out in the ocean. And somehow he said yes and didn't get murdered. But we jumped out, and I don't think he was doing it on purpose. He was probably just trying to drum up business, but I took it as a little bit of a slight. You see, we didn't have a ton of money at the time, and I wasn't sure how into this we were. I certainly wasn't going to scuba dive. And so we just got the little mini snorkeling tour version, right? And we're just zooming across and going out. And every once in a while, he'd slow down the boat, and he would point over the edge. And he would say, I felt a bit patronizing. He would say, you know, if you spent more time or more money, and he'd look at my wife. I'm just, he didn't really do that. That's how it felt a little bit. I'm like, fine, I know. We're not going to scuba dive and do the whole thing. But he said, if this right here is a whole day dive, there's a buried ship underneath there. There's a mermaid, and you can talk to them. And yeah, I mean, like all the wonders of the world are taking place right down there. But then he would just speed off, you know, if you bought that, and then just went. And he would do this three or four times where he'd point out different areas. Oh, if you snorkel here, it's, there's sharks that snuggle with you, or whatever it is. Everything was amazing, right? It was intriguing. And it was a bummer because then you just zoom off, and you're going to keep going on to wherever you went. And I know that for many of you, you know the Old Testament well, and you love these stories. You've lapped them up. You've lived in their lessons. We are not, this morning, going to be able to take a whole day dive into many of these places. We are instead going to skim along the surface, and we're going to try to set up the next number of weeks where we say, what will it look like for us to go down and to find treasure? So I am the boat driver in this illustration. Shall we begin? Let's begin driving. First verse of Acts chapter 7, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. The high priest said, are these things so? And we'll come back and we'll explain what things. Are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Let's pause for a moment together and, and pray. Well, Father, we've sung together this morning that we need you. 
I ask that that would move from just melody and it would be a, a prayer. Help us to pray that, to feel that. And so I confess to you that we need you right now. We are dull often. Maybe even right now we can feel the pull, the temptations of cynicism. We know the possibilities to let hurt or doubt or bitterness control us far too deeply for far too long. And so I ask that you'd give us faith, attentiveness, a kind of unity as we study together. Spirit of God, would you move here? We've sung and we've gathered and we've prayed, but you alone, Spirit, can move and change and transform. So we ask, Spirit of God, for the fruit of the Spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, for life, renewed minds and hearts. Give us attentiveness and focus beyond our own abilities. Comfort us where we need comfort. Convict us and chasten us where we need to be corrected. God, we thank you for this time. May we not be like those who heard but were unaffected, not like those who had received but been ungrateful. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The high priest said, Are these things so? To set the scene, we kind of brought you right into the conflict there at the beginning. Stephen has been accused by an unscrupulous band of schemers. He has been brought before, dragged before the high priest, and accused of speaking blasphemous words against place and law. Place and law. In other words, they accused him of saying, you don't understand the temple, you don't understand God's place, and secondarily, you don't understand God's word, what he said you are speaking against the law, place and law. And what we're going to find is that in his speech, this is his defense. So are these things so? And in his defense, Stephen is going to essentially say, in a, in a lengthy, detailed way, nah you. Remember that old defense? Remember that one from the playgrounds? No, I'm not. You are. And he is in a very bold way, in a clear way, going to say, uh, excuse me, high priest, I'm here to declare to you today that it turns out that you are the one that have always misunderstood God's place. And we're going to say this is a heading over Acts chapter 7. What Stephen wants to insist on is that God's place has always been his people. That where God invites a people in, that is where he dwells. And though there is the temple, and though it matters that there's a promised land, that they missed it. They missed that the land and the temple pointed to God's presence with his people rather than fighting over or being so tied to the dirt. So the first response will be, well, here's how I respond to your charges that I don't understand place and I'm speaking against it. You are the one who blasphemes this place. Secondarily, they're going to say, you don't understand the law. You're speaking words against the law. And Stephen is going to say, well, excuse me, high priest, let me give you a recounting of the number of times that God has spoken clearly and that you and our people have rejected it. And that is why he begins, back at the beginning, to tell the full story of the gospel. To convict them concerning their rejection of Jesus, he starts back with the God of glory appearing to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. 
It's going to be most obvious with Abraham's story, so I'll just point it out here. We won't have time everywhere through Acts chapter 7, but I want to show you the way that he's responding to this charge. Are you blaspheming or speaking against place and law? Essentially, these two things, that a place has always been a people, that God has always been with his people, that's where he dwells, and secondarily, that the law is going to point to a person, that the fulfillment of the law is not a strict pharisaical reading of the law, but to point us to our need for a person, a future prophet, a Messiah. And so look at, with me, just these verses that we just read, the places that he is responding to these charges. He starts out by saying, the God of glory appeared to our Father when he was in, there's a place statement, he was in Mesopotamia. God was there. And this was before he lived in Haran. God was there, seeing him in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into a land to place words, go other places with the anticipation, of course, that God must have been able to be there. Verse 4, Abraham went out from that land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, more places to be. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land. So do you see all the places that Stephen is mentioning? And it turns out that God not only saw, but he planned, and he reached out, and he spoke, and he was there. And he removed him from, that, from there into this land in which you are now living. And Stephen is saying to them, do you even understand the place that you are? Verse 6, God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land, in a place. In other words, he's telling him, you've misunderstood the way that God envisioned this place anyway. He told you you'd be sojourners in a place. Chapter 7. Or chapter 7. It is chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. God is going to say later, they'll come out and worship me in this place. Over and over again, Stephen is defending that God is, his place is with his people. So these are named places on a map, but God's place ultimately is with his people. He's not bound or tied to one geography. We haven't read it yet, but verse 9, he's going to mention that Joseph is sold off and goes into Egypt, and guess what? God meets them there. So Stephen's defense, first and foremost, is that they've misunderstood that God's place is always with his people. Secondarily, note the number of times that he's going to say, do you remember what God said or do you know what it meant? Verse 3, the God of glory had appeared and in verse 3 said to Abraham, God's word, he said this. Verse 6, God spoke to this effect. He said things to Abraham. Verse 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. This speaking of God, this continual word of God, is given forth to Stephen to say, do you remember, here's the way this went. Abraham was often given commands, but he disobeyed. And when things went well for Abraham, he listened and obeyed. And when things went poorly, it was because he doubted and made his own way. What he is saying to the high priest is essentially this, you have always misunderstood and still are misunderstanding to this day that God's place is always with his people, not just the land that he promised them, though there is a land. It's just that that land pointed to a greater reality. They missed it. And secondarily, when you've heard God's word, you've always missed this, that God's word is to point us to trust in him, namely the person of the Messiah who would come. You've misunderstood the law, and in doing so, you've broken it again and again and again. 
And if we do not listen well to these lessons, or if we think this is the story of someone else, then we may fall victim as well to misunderstanding the most fundamental things about what God is doing. What was God doing thousands of years ago in calling an obscure man graciously with no resume and saying, I will turn you into a people? We should not make the same mistakes, and that is why we're going through Acts chapter 7. So we get to the end of Acts chapter 7, verse 8, and whoever's doing the felt board in the Sunday school class is already tired, right? They already had to put up Haran, and they had to put Mesopotamia, and then they had to put God there to seek to Abraham, and then he's got to go. And you know, if you've studied this well, that by the time we get to verse 8, where it says, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, that there are decades of struggle in here. Do you see how quickly Stephen is telling the story? In 2019, we studied through Genesis, the whole book. And so if you want a deep dive, that's one good place you could look. But do you see how fast he's going through? So Abraham became the father of Isaac. If that is not one of the greatest understatements of all time, those of us who have wrestled with God and know the story say, oh wow, there's so much there. But we need to move forward because this is, after all, a greatest hits album. It's not a day after day scuba dive. So, if you're ready with your next felt board figures, we've gone to Jacob and his 12 patriarchs. Namely, it starts in verse 9, as I begin reading, with his chosen and beloved son, Joseph. And it says this in verse 9 of Acts chapter 7, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to the brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob's father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Pause there just to note that we have now made it through the entirety of the book of Genesis. So how fast is Stephen going? Well, he's going pretty fast. If you want to go back, we're now in 16 verses. Stephen is summed up for the high priest. Let me tell you what God's about when he's bringing about a people. And we're going to go back and we're going to see and rediscover many of these stories week by week. Here's the question. God's people are now in Egypt, not in Canaan. They are 75 people, not the multitudes promised, the great nation promised to Abraham. So in a new place, without a ton of God's voice, what will happen? Is everything lost? Is it over? And the answer will be, of course, no, because God's place is always with his people, even if they're somewhere else. And he will move to speak again and to give them a law that will point to a person. So we pick it up in verse 17, Acts chapter 7. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now this great nation is coming. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, 
And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Do you see it? Do you know, know the story well enough? Do you remember the picture of the little basket sending it down the river? The story of the way that God was preserving his people, preparing them to hear his voice even through this time? If so, then you're following along with Stephen and you're invited to remember the story of God's people. He goes on to tell Moses' story in verse 23. When he, being Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. I'll pause here in 29. We now have God's people separated in some ways. We have God's people, the millions of them in Egypt, without much hope or seemingly the voice of God. And we have Moses, who's being accused of being the leader of his people and the ruler over them, but he's rejected. And he's sent off into a different land in Midian, away from them. The question remains, well, what will happen with God's people if by place they are separated? Will he speak? There is no law. He has not given his voice. What will happen? And Stephen is going to show them that the story of God's people has always been about his presence with them and about listening carefully for his voice. And that is, of course, what happens with Moses as we pick up in verse 30. When 40 years had passed, again, the Bible sometimes, this can get very easy to gloss over. How would I read it this way? Now when your entire life had passed, Lance, that's a long time. Was God still there? Was he still committed to making a people? Was he bummed? He called Abram all those generations ago, and now he's just looking down and thinking like, oh man, that guy's in Midian. No, it turns out that God is committed to his people. When 40 years had passed, in verse 30, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. You know what I love about this description that Stephen gives? He, lifts, he leaves out the best part. He fails to mention at all that the bush did not burn up. He's, he's got other purposes. But in case this is the first time you ever heard the story, the bush doesn't burn up. You should go and check it out. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, where did the Lord speak? Well, the Lord said and spoke in Midian, a whole different place. Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel 
who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. He just glossed over the plagues. This is the Moses who said to Israel, Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. I'm just going to say that again. This is the point that Stephen is making. Moses, the one appointed leader, ruler, redeemer, was given living oracles to give to you. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. I've heard this idolatry in this particular moment once described as adultery on the wedding day. Israel, despite about to hear the very Word of God, the law of God handed down in the place where God dwelt with them. They turn away. And so in verse 42, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. We'll pause in 44. What is he saying? He's saying that Moses set up a place where God would be, a place and a place where God would speak to give words of law and comfort. He goes on in verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought, in it, brought it in with Joshua, Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling for the place or for the God of Jacob. He's just uh, glossed over the entire period of the judges, all the way through Saul and the establishment of the, of the kings, and says the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and was asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. The question there was, where will God be? What is his dwelling place? But it was Solomon, says verse 47, who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? I'm going to pause here at the end of verse 50. The last number of verses, Stephen's tone is changed. I want you to imagine that he's called before the high priest, and he's been called to give an account. He has every bit of self-interest in the world to preserve himself. And many of the things said so far, any historian of Israel would have nodded along and said amen. In fact, some of this seems to be a useless and crazy exercise. Remember who he's standing in front of? The high priest. Now, he's giving the high priest a history lesson in the Old Testament and the story of Israel. I don't know about you, but do you, do you remember what the job description is for the high priest and how you get that gig? He probably would have known. It would be like you standing in front of Einstein and being like, let me, let me tell you a little about energy and about mass and about the way this whole thing works. So the question becomes, what is Stephen doing 
by inviting them to reconsider God's place with his people and his word and his law that points to a person. What is he doing? Well, he is calling them to repentance. Out of his own, it is against his own self-interest that he desires for Israel. He has the same heart for the high priest and for those who had rejected God as Paul has in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He has a desire that they would see the hardness of their hearts that they would receive the joyous reality that God's presence, His place, is not only with ethnic Israel or not only in a temple that was built, but those pointed to a greater reality of God Himself dwelling in our midst, of Jesus becoming Emmanuel, our tabernacle, our temple. He is calling them to repentance to say, you've misunderstood that when God has spoken, He pointed to a prophet who would come. When God has spoken, He pointed to one who would fulfill and embody the law. And how do we know that he's calling the high priest to repentance? Well, because starting in verse 51, we find perhaps one of the most bold speeches ever recorded. He says, in the face of the high priest, you stiff-necked people. He speaks to them, like I yell at my dog when he will not fetch. Worse than that, you stiff-necked people, he calls them uncircumcised in heart and in ears. It may be difficult all these generations removed, but this is an insult. This is telling them you've missed it about as far as you could miss it. He says of them, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law, who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Here is Stephen's point. Stephen's point is that these leaders, those who were the most religious, those who had the most investment in the promise of being God's people, had always misunderstood that God's place was in his presence with his people, not only tied to a land, and they'd always misunderstood that God's giving of the law was to point them to a person, to point them to one who would be the righteous one. My version of the Bible, which I appreciate, has it capitalized, the righteous one, like a title. And he is trying to show them that they can, if they would just listen, if they would bend their necks, if they would humble their hearts, if they would allow the Holy Spirit to not be resisted but to come in, that they could avoid the problems, the sins, the difficulties of their fathers who had disobeyed and misunderstood and tied themselves to a narrow understanding of place. And in response to this, he is stoned. He is put to death. He finds a much greater commendation because it is in this particular moment, there's not many instances like this, but the heavens themselves open and God shows his approval of this boldness. And sometimes I read through this and I think to myself, after all the stories of the Old Testament, all the pointing to a future Messiah, This boldness of speech, the heavens themselves opening, I think, how is it that hardness 
remained. Now that was a long tour through Acts chapter 7. If you're still with me, let alone alive, I'm grateful. You may be saying to yourself, okay, well, let's get back into these stories then. Why don't we just go back and read them? And there's a few reasons that I wanted to read Acts chapter 7 first getting into this. One is it's a connection, another connection between the New Testament and the Old, or the Fulfilled Testament and the Vintage. And I wanted you to see that the Bible is one story. May that be our remembrance this summer. The Bible's one story, so the connection is good. Secondarily, I believe there is a unique connection between this speech specifically and Paul's heart for Israel. How do I know that? Well, I want you to look at a small detail that opens chapter 8 of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, tells us that Saul approved of his execution. Paul would later tell us, or this Saul, who later converts by meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, that he was one who stood by while those faithful martyrs were being executed. He was one who received their things and had their garments thrown at his feet while he lorded it over them in their deaths. And I can't help but wonder if this speech, this realization, this burning accusation that Israel was hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and had not understood God's place with his people or his law, I wonder if this wasn't reverberating in Paul's heart and mind as he writes concerning Israel. The themes here, the faith and the promises to Abraham, an interpretation of who God's family is ethnically, the understanding of the law, the understanding of David and Jesus coming in his line. These are all of the themes that Paul hits and wants to discuss concerning the gospel in Romans. I've often said it's a very good tip if you want to follow along a train of thought. If you ever find yourself reading a book or discovering something and you love it and you think to yourself, this person is brilliant. One of the best things you can do if you want a good rabbit trail is figure out who influenced that person. So you go to the bibliography and you say, wait, where, who were they reading? I love reading this. Who were they reading? And you got yourself a whole life of reading just like that. And Acts chapter 7, I think, is significant in this way. If you've enjoyed Romans, if you thought that Paul seemed brilliant, if you just loved how he shaped and spoke to both Gentile world and Israel, then I would say to you, well, who influenced him? And Acts chapter 8, verse 1, seems to indicate that Paul had listened well to the lessons of Stephen. He's rethinking the story of God's people. Let me give you a few hopes. Perhaps warnings, but a few hopes. Here's a hope for me as we endeavor to consider the story of God's people. First and foremost, that we would remember that it is very possible to know more than others, but have it not change you. To remember in the story of Israel that knowledge is not enough. Big-brained Christianity is not enough. What do you know that you have not appropriated? What kind of light have you refused? I want to be humbled by and think through the blessing that it is that I have all the information that I have and then I want to ask myself, Am I letting the Spirit of God move me to more humility of heart, not stiff-necked pride? 
Second, big thing that I hope to have happen through these number of weeks. I hope that you begin to see when you read the Bible, not as the story of some people over there and then us. It's very easy to read the New Testament and think, well, that's their story, this is ours, we're different. I want to invite you to be seeing the next 10 weeks and seeing all the Bible as a discovery of your story. This is not Israel's story, it's yours. If you have confessed Jesus and you are found in him, then you are part of God's family and what he was doing, calling Abram all those generations ago, thousands of years ago, was he was calling you. We get much more interested when it involves us. As an example, my dad, he loves genealogy. He's just into it. He's obsessed. He wants to plan a trip to Norway. He's talking about maybe his 70th birthday and this kind of stuff. But one of the things we're worried about is what he might want to do if we went there with him. You see, I want to see the fjords, and I want to find out their food and look at all the beautiful places, and my dad wants to go walk around graveyards. I said, Dad, well, why do you want to go to that graveyard? He said, well, I've just been really bothered. I got a couple great aunts, and I'm not sure exactly there's confusion about their middle names. He just wants the details. Starting during COVID, he got a notebook, and he's been learning on Duolingo, Norwegian phrases. So it is very common now to say something to him, and he will, with a huge grin, respond back with some gobbledygook that no one knows. Tusintuk. And he just loves this. The point being that he has become enamored by and he wants to know the story of Norway because he believes it to be and knows it to be his story. It is no longer just a graveyard, but those are his ancestors. They're buried in the, bone, in the ground, their bones, crying out and telling his story. So here's what I would love to happen. Those of us who live on the other side of the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. You didn't miss anything. The f- live on the other side of the first coming of Christ. I said that wrong. That this is our story. And where and when we have glossed over or ignored the history of Israel or seen them as other, we have rejected our own history, our own people. And what happens when we reject them as our people and don't see what God is doing and gloriously bringing together one people is we end up rejecting God's provision to us in our history. It wasn't that God was just moving with in his presence, just with God's people back then. He was doing that with and for us. It wasn't just that God was speaking to Abraham and calling him back then and giving the law to Moses back then and continually sending the prophets back then for them. He was doing that for us. So, perhaps what the goal is over the next 10 weeks to say it succinctly, is to make the Old Testament new again. To bring to our hearts and our minds not only a longing for, but an interest, a Lance's dad level of minutia interest in our history. Because after all, all the Bible is the story of God's people. So let's pray.